Uh, I want to begin by inviting you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We pick up where we left off last time, and today we want to look at verses 1 through 21. Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. If you're looking for a title for this morning's message, I've chosen Spiritual Blindness for Mine, because that's, I think, the primary sense that's uh, being conveyed, a lesson on the subject of spiritual blindness by the time we get to the end of this section. If, um, if you're like me, sometimes it's hard to read the Bible and imagine that people could fail to believe when they see the kinds of things that you read about in the Bible. I still remember as a kid, now I'm going to date myself, but uh, and when, uh, when I was a kid, Moses' name was Charlton Heston. <laughs> and uh, I still remember as a kid watching that movie, and uh, I see your smiles and some of you looking like, what is he talking about? So the guy that played Moses in the old movie was Charlton Heston. And I was a little kid, and I remember watching that on TV and asking my mom, how could the Israelites not believe if God did those kinds of miracles? How could they not believe? And then even when you continue to go through the, the Old Testament, and you wind up with them wandering in the wilderness because despite all the signs that they saw God do on their behalf, against the Egyptians, in spite of seeing the parting of the Red Sea, right? And they walk through on dry ground, and then as soon as the Egyptian army goes into the sea, uh, God lifts His hands, uh, or however He did it, and uh, the waters just wash the most powerful army on the, in the world away, just, and they're gone. Now, how can you get to the land of Israel, how, how can you get to the promised land and say, oh, the, there's giants in the land, they're way, way too big for us to be able to take them? How can you be that quick, uh, basically about a month later, how can you be there, uh, well, I take it back, it's a couple of months later, but in any case, uh, uh, it's about a year later, but in any case, it's, uh, uh, they've gone through the wilderness, or they've gone to Mount Sinai, they've received the Ten Commandments, they've seen the holiness of God come down on the mountain, they saw those miracles that He did, they get to the edge of the land of promise, and they don't think God can help them? How can, how can, how can you not see how powerful God is? How can you not trust Him, not believe in Him? You see the same thing, in fact, in in a, on a level of magnitude well beyond even the types of miracles that God did in Moses' day, God did when He showed up personally uh, in uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus did so many miracles that John says they're just countless. I suppose if I were to write about all of them, uh, all the books in the world wouldn't hold it. Okay, but the ones that I'm writing to you in the Gospel of John are the ones that I think best portray to you who Jesus is so you can believe in him and, be, and have eternal life. When you read through the, the various Gospel accounts, they are all deliberate in saying he did, he cast out many, 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 many demons. He healed everybody that came to him, the lame, the sick, the demon-possessed, the blind, the deaf, the mutes. He raised people from the dead. 
He goes up to Lazarus' tomb and says to Lazarus, come forth. And even though he's dead, he obeys him. Comes back. That's the power of Jesus Christ. The, the very God who said, let there be light, is the one who showed up on earth and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And with all the things that Jesus did, when he's, when he's asleep on the boat and the disciples wake him up, terrified that they're going to drown. And listen, they know it's a real storm, right? These, uh, at least four of these guys are professional fishermen in these waters. And they wake Jesus up and, and say, don't you care, we're going to die. And he stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, the disciples are no longer afraid of the storm outside the boat. They're now afraid of God inside the boat. And yet, in spite of that, even the disciples seem to be very dim-witted and slow to understand and and hard-hearted, stiff-necked and unbelieving, lacking faith, despite all of that evidence that they have had in all those miracles. Countless miracles. How can people see Jesus doing all of those miracles and not believe? How can people respond? As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together through these first seven chapters, what is the number one most common way that people have responded to Jesus? In a superficial uh, uh, appreciation of Him. In, in In an appreciation of what benefit He can bring to them. And a superficial, positive response uh, toward him, excited to see him. If you got somebody that's sick, you take them to him. But as far as real commitment, listen, this is the reason that Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll tell you what you're like. You're like a man who built his house on sand. Because you have no real commitment to me in the end, you're... Your response to me is just a superficial positive response. And in the end, you're going to find that you don't have a relationship with me and you will go uh, into the second death. It's just it's 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 not just sad. It's unfathomable. And then even beyond that is the antagonistic response of the religious leaders. How can the scribes and the Pharisees not see and recognize the power of God that's on display in the person of Jesus Christ. You ever seen a person do a miracle? You ever seen a person walk into a hospital and cure everybody there? You ever seen anybody take a handful of loaves and fish and feed 20, 30,000 people? You ever see a guy with a withered hand just be told to stretch it out and it's instantly restored? You ever seen a man born blind uh, and, and have somebody just spit on the ground, make a couple of little mud packs, rub it in their eyes, say, go wash in the pool, you wash, and the next thing, oh, I can see. You ever seen anything like that? If you saw something like that, it'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? What would you think? Oh, it's time to get a TV contract, right? This is, you know, this is, this is a reality TV show. Everybody's going to want to see this, right? Uh, but if you got somebody sick, you're going to want to bring them to them. Listen, this is the way that people responded. Even the disciples, even the disciples in Mark 4, when the storm is hitting the boat, they wake Jesus up and say, don't you care? In Mark chapter 7, 
verse 17. Jesus, uh, uh, when, when the crowd uh, uh, had left and Jesus entered the house, his disciples questioned him uh, about the parable that he had just told. And he said, are you so lacking in understanding also? When he was rebuking the religious leaders about it, it doesn't matter what you put into your mouth. That's not going to corrupt you. It doesn't matter whether you wash your hands or not before you eat. He says, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside can't defile him because it doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach is eliminated. Don't you understand even these basic truths that I've been teaching and teaching and teaching? And you, and you look at the disciples. And we're going to see next time, we're going to see how, uh, despite the fact that disciples finally recognize Jesus for who He is truly as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, Peter goes, uh, no, it's not going to go that way. How can people be so blind to the truth, both believers and unbelievers? How can it be so hard for people to see what is, frankly, so obvious? How can people today hold to a belief in evolution when there's, frankly, no evidence for it? How can people not believe the biblical account when from cover to cover it makes sense? How can people be so spiritually blind? Well, today what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a, a basically a lesson on the subject of spiritual blindness. I'd like you to see that spiritual blindness is a danger to all of us. And as we take a look at Mark 8, verses 1 to 21, uh, what I'd like to do is help you see the reality of spiritual blindness and the nature of it. So that the mundane and earthly circumstances of our lives are not the only lens through which we see the events pertaining to our own Christian experience. I hope you see that it's very possible for you and me to be spiritually blind on occasion and not recognize the hand of God and not be practicing faith in God as we go through our earthly circumstances despite all the evidence that He's given to us right here in Scripture, not to mention our own Christian lives. I'd like you to see that spiritual blindness is a reality and something that it isn't just the lost who need to be concerned about it. But it's you and me as well. We need to have eyes that see and ears that hear. So that we can live a life that honors God. So today as we look at the subject of spiritual blindness. I'd like to do it in two parts. If you're taking notes. There are two points that we're going to be looking at today. First of all. The provision of a spiritual sign. This is Mark 8 verses 1 to 10. And then the principle of spiritual blindness. Verses 11 to 21. The provision and the principle, the provision of a spiritual sign, 1 to 10, and the principle of spiritual blindness. We'll start with the first one, the provision of a spiritual sign. And this is very much like a passage we looked at not so long ago in Mark chapter 6. The spiritual sign that we're talking about here is the feeding of the 4,000. This is an event that 
liberals historically have argued is just a conflation, uh, just a redundant account. It's, it's, they, they, they want to call it the same event that took place in Mark 6. It's interesting that the feeding of the 5,000 that we studied in Mark 6 is recorded in all four Gospels. That shows you how important, how significant that is as far as, a, as an account, as far as something that happened. All of the disciples remembered it very clearly. And you'll recall when we went through there, Jesus did that feeding of the 5,000 in a Jewish area up in Galilee, in the northern part of where the Sea of Galilee is, out in the wilderness area. And he did that feeding of the 5,000. That was just men, not, not counting women and children. So you're looking at somewhere between twenty and 30,000 people. And you'll recall when we went through uh, our study of that text, that when he did that miracle, he started the day. Uh, first of all, he was trying to get there to spend some quality time with his disciples, let them have some rest and give them some personal instruction. But the multitudes followed him. So he was kind of, because of his compassion for the people, he's kind of stuck. I got all these people that need me and they're like sheep without a shepherd. My heart goes out to them. So I'm going to do miracles and I'm going to spend the day teaching them. But I still really very much need to prepare my disciples for what's coming. So he in John six, we're told he starts by asking Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? That's the beginning of the day. They go through the whole ministry of the day. You get to the end of the day and the disciples have come up with this grand answer. Uh, It's almost dark, Jesus. You need to send them into the surrounding towns because we can't do it. And then Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish and he feeds everybody, right? Now that was that was in Galilee and that was a primarily Jewish audience. Five thousand men plus women and children were fed. Here in this account in Mark eight verses one to ten, we see a second time when Jesus does a miraculous feeding, multiplying loaves and fish just, uh, uh, on this occasion, just like he did last time. And this is a different event. Only Matthew and Mark have this account in them. The parallel is in uh, Mark 15 and then in verse, and, and Mark 16 for the, for, for the end of the passage we're going to study this morning. And you'll notice uh, the details of the two events are very different. Uh, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, versus 4,000 men, not counting women and children. There it was five loaves and a couple of fish. Here it's seven loaves. There it was 12 baskets left over. Here it's seven baskets left over, etc. So uh, that one was a primarily a Jewish audience, a Jewish crowd that he ministered to and, and fed. Here it's going to be a primarily Gentile audience, etc. So there's a lot of de- details that are different uh, if you want, you can look at the uh, you, you can go to the website and you can listen to the uh, uh, Mark, uh, excuse me, the Matthew 15 uh, message we did on this. We went through all of the interpretive issue there. I'm not going to belabor the point this morning, but simply to say it's very clearly different when you look at the details. These are two completely different events. But there are similarities. And in fact, when we get into the account here, Jesus personally is going to say there were two events. And if if that isn't enough to convince you, then you've got a different issue with spiritual blindness than just needing to be taught in general about it this morning. We come here to an event that both Matthew and Mark 
consider to be essential to record as Jesus is teaching the disciples. And this is from Matthew, who was one of the twelve, and from Mark, who is writing on behalf of Peter, who was also one of the twelve. And you recall that Peter uh, is the one who uh, failed at, well, both succeeded and failed at the walking on the water in context with that first feeding. This is a pretty significant event for uh, for them because it is Jesus teaching a serious lesson. And the main point we'll see from this account isn't just that it was another feeding miracle, but that the significance of both miracles was lost to a large degree on the people who experienced them, specifically the disciples. And that's the key to begin with here in Mark chapter 8. Notice the context, verse 1. In those days, that is those days that we left off with last week, when Jesus has sought to separate Himself uh, from the Jews. The religious, Jewish religious leaders are really after Him. Herod has put John the Baptist to death. The multitudes are very interested in Jesus, but their attachment and interest in Him is very superficial. And so He separates Himself and heads up, you remember last week, up into the region of Tyre. And He makes His way all the way around above Galilee, all the way back around down into the area of the Decapolis. So He's to the east of the Sea of Galilee. He's down in a primarily Gentile area. And He's largely folk trying to stay incognito and trying to focus on training the Twelve. But of course, lots of people, even the Gentiles that are in those surrounding areas, recognize Him because He's done so many miracles and He's, he's become so popular and so renowned because of that. People recognize him. You remember the Syrophoenician woman that we looked at last week comes to him and just asks him to heal her daughter. You remember they bring to him one who is both deaf and mute and implored him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside and healed him and then said, don't tell anybody. But you'll also recall in verse 36 that when he gave them orders not to tell anyone, the more he ordered them not to tell anyone, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And, his, and the response that the Jews, or excuse me, that the Gentiles had toward him is that they were utterly astonished. They were blown away. And they evaluated him in a very positive light. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is very different than the reception that he got in Israel where you got the religious leaders that are very antagonistic toward him and accusing him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Listen, the Gentiles are just thrilled and impressed. Well, it's in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat that Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. That's again another distinction between the previous account. The previous account was the same day. This because they followed him out into the wilderness. This is an account in the wilderness in a different region down in a Gentile area. And they've been together for three days. And yet still Jesus feels compassion for the people. And yes, these are Gentiles primarily. But his heart still goes out to them. And he says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. Some of them have traveled quite a ways to get here. And again, that just uh, demonstrates just how popular Jesus was because his miracles were real. 
The power of God was clearly and continually on display in and through him. Do you ever read of an occasion where Jesus was unable to do a miracle? Do you ever read of an occasion where Jesus couldn't cast out a demon? Or even a legion of demons? You see times when he says, I won't do one. You guys don't have any faith. I'm not doing anything. That's his hometown, and he leaves. You will never find any problem that Jesus encounters that he cannot solve. You will never find a time when somebody seeks to trip him up in an argument or question him and put him to the test. You will never find him even one time stumbling. Why? Because he's God. Clearly on display continually. And here you have a, a large crowd, and they have nothing to eat. So Jesus calls his disciples. Now he's talking to his disciples about the problem. He says, I feel compassion for the people because they've been with me for three days. And now all the food is gone. All the resources are gone. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, some of them have come from a long distance. And I just, I don't, I don't want to do that. Now, does that sound at all familiar? Does it sound like what the text we looked at in Mark 6? That in John 6, uh, uh, the, the Bible tells us Jesus starts at the beginning of the day and says, Philip, <laughs> we got a lot of people here. Round numbers, 20,000, maybe 30,000. There's a lot of people here, Philip. How are we going to feed all these people? And Philip goes, uh... 200 denarii worth of bread, 200 days pay worth of bread, won't feed them all. You get to the end of the day, and, they, and they've come up with their answer, Jesus, you need to dismiss them and have them go fend for themselves because we can't meet the need. And he says, you feed them. You meet the need. Remember that? And what happens? They say, well, do we take the 200 denarii we have and go out and buy bread so that everybody can get maybe a little? Do we do, we do that? Because that, that, that doesn't seem like a reasonable answer. He says, what do you have? Five loaves and a few fish? Bring them to me. Breaks them, gives thanks, and everybody eats until they're satisfied, right? We've already gone through this exact same event. This is a couple of months ago in the, in the time frame, but we've already had exactly this event. Slightly different context, different group of people, different crowd, slightly different, somewhat different circumstances. 20,000 people instead of 30,000 people. Maybe it's 15 instead of 20, but round numbers, okay? 20,000 people instead of 30,000 people. Still a large crowd, still nothing left to eat. Jesus still has compassion, and he again says to his disciples, I feel compassion for them. They've been with me for a while. There's nothing for them to eat. And I don't want to send them away on an empty stomach. Notice the disciples' response. His disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now I'm going to stop here. There are some commentators, some really excellent uh, commentators. I think your study Bible lands here too. But there are some excellent commentators that have said the disciples can't be so daft as to miss it again. Okay? So his disciples at this point are just 
pointing out the facts. They're not actually truly missing the point and failing at that same uh, quiz yet again. But I got news for you. I'm a professor in a seminary. I'm here to tell you. I've had guys that have been interns in this church that have missed the same question on multiple quizzes before. Right, Mike? I've, I've seen it happen. And when you look at the parallel, and I want you to keep your finger here in Mark 8, and I want you to turn back to Matthew 15 with, with me for a moment. This, coupled with what Jesus says at the end of our passage, is what convinces me the disciples swing and miss again. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Jesus calls his disciples to him and says, I feel compassion. So yeah, Matthew 15, 32. Jesus calls his disciples to him. And he says, I feel compassion for the people because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? You say, well, that's not exactly what it says in Mark. You're right, because there's a dozen disciples. And my guess is that what Matthew is writing is what he or one of the other disciples said initially. How are we going to be able to meet this need? And then in Mark, we're told that somebody else said, where would anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? You put those two together, and I am as convinced as I'm standing here, those disciples were again still looking to themselves to try to figure out how to, how to do this. And you go, well, I just, it's hard to believe that they couldn't connect those dots. Why wouldn't they just say, well, Jesus, last time we were in a situation like this, you just multiplied the loaves and fish. Does anybody have any loaves? Can you do it again for us? Because we, we can't do it. But see, if, if this was the case, I am convinced it would say that. It doesn't say anything like that. You know what it says? In Matthew it says, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Where would we be able to, you called us together to meet this, where would we be able to do this? And then in Mark, where would anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to save these people? This is a problem that's impossible to solve. You're going to have to send them away. And then you go back to Mark. The disciples answer and say, where would anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And so Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Well, what do you have? How many loaves? And they said, seven. Now, remember, when we talk about loaves, we're just talking about like little pita pockets. Like, how big are the ones that you use for communion? Like, about like this? A little bit bigger? Okay, those are probably a little bigger than the ones they had. All right? They're probably looking something like, you ever had a taco tortilla? It's probably about that, roughly that size. Okay? And so they had seven loaves, flatbread loaves, like that. 
That's, by the way, how you break them and the parts and all that stuff. They're just like the little flatbed. Don't think of a loaf like Wonder Bread or whatever bread is nowadays, okay? That's, and we're not talking loaves like that, okay? We're talking just a flatbread loaf. He says, well, what do you have? How many loaves? Seven. Okay, so he directs the people to sit down on the ground. Just like last time, probably breaking again into groups of 50 and 100 facilitates the distribution. And he takes the seven loaves, he gives thanks, and he breaks them, and he started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Same thing what we saw last time, right? In the feeding of the 5,000. What do you have? Well, we just have seven loaves. Okay, bring them to me. They bring him the seven loaves. You know, one of the liberal accounts suggested that there was a cave in the area. And what actually happened is that that Jesus had already stored many bags of loaves and fish back there. And so the disciples lined up behind him. And he just did this kind of like this, uh, this magic trick. We'll have to do that for Thanksgiving for the Thanksmas little talent show. We'll just multiply loaves and fish. You can stand behind, hide behind the pulpit, and, and I'll just keep passing them out. But that's what somebody said. You know, the account says the disciples had no idea how to do it. Well, what do you have? Well, we just have seven loaves. Nobody could do this. The disciples are not in on a scam. Do you really think, well, yes, you can fool 20,000 people, 30,000 people with magic shows. Okay, but to to do something like that, like making the, the Statue of Liberty disappear or whatever, you need technology. Misdirection in technology. Jesus is all the miracles that Jesus does. There's no way it could be misdirection. He would have gotten caught and people wouldn't say you're doing that. The, the people that are opposed to him wouldn't be able to say the their only answer is you have to be doing it by the powers of darkness. No, they're real miracles. They're absolutely real miracles. He takes seven loaves, he breaks them, he gives thanks and starts handing them out to the disciples and the disciples are taking those and they're running it out. And so how long does it take, do you think, to feed 20,000 people? Generally speaking, you can feed an arena full of people in in a a little over half time. It's about 30 minutes. So I figure it took them an hour to distribute all the bread for everybody. And Jesus just keeps breaking the loaves and keep passing them out. There's also a few fish. So he blesses them and orders them to be served as well. And result, about the first eight people got a bite. And the rest of the people went home hungry. Is that what it says? No, it says in verse eight, they ate and were satisfied. By the way, that's that same word. Uh, this will be on your quiz. That's the Greek word cortazo. It literally means to, be, to eat until you are full, until you want no more. Uh, when it's used in reference to livestock, horses and cows, etc., it means to be all foddered up. It's when you eat and now, okay, and I'll just go out and wander and take my standing nap now. Okay, this is, this is the Thanksgiving word. Eat until I'm full, till I don't want any more. That's it. They were satisfied. They kept passing out pieces until everybody had pieces. And then in all the groups, they're sitting around. They go, hey, we got some more bread. Anybody want some? No, no, pass it over to the other group. The other group says they don't want them either. Everybody's full. Round numbers, 
4,000 men plus women and children, 4,000 households represented. Uh, for the sake of argument, let's say it's a husband, a wife, and two kids. 16,000 people just ate on seven loaves. And not only that, when it's all done, verse 8, they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over, the broken pieces. Now, notice the expression large baskets. That's one word in the Greek, and you could translate that as something like a hamper. So, do you know what a hamper is? About a third of you. Okay, so uh, uh, when I was a kid, we had a dirty clothes hamper. It was basically a basket with a lid on it, stood about this tall, was about this size. Okay, and that's where you put your dirty clothes. This same word is used in Acts 9. 25, I think. Yes, Acts 9, 25, to refer to the basket that went. Remember when Paul got saved in Acts 8? Acts 9, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he starts preaching the gospel. Oh, the Jews are so pleased to find out that their Pharisee that they sent to hunt down and kill Christians has come back and preached, started preaching the gospel even more authoritatively and, and with more conviction than the Christians used to do. So guess what? They want to give him a medal. No, they want to kill him. So the disciples who were afraid to receive him to begin with go, wow, okay, you're really zealous and you're about to die. So we're going to slip you out tonight. They put him in a large basket, same word as used here, and lowered him out through a hole in the wall to help him to escape from the Jews that wanted to kill him. Okay, that's this word. So you're talking about, remember the, the 12 baskets of leftover pieces from the first, from the feeding of the 5,000, remember that? That word for a basket is basically a knapsack. It's like your travel basket, a little wicker basket that people, because you don't have a car. You don't use a wagon typically. You typically don't even ride an animal. You walk everywhere. So you have the, essentially a travel bag, a wicker basket that you put to, uh, rations in. You put bread and maybe a few small fish, etc., like the little kid whose lunch Jesus multiplied to feed the 5,000. And when they were all done, they had enough broken pieces to fill 12 of those little wicker baskets, those little travel backs, uh, packs, the, the knapsack, if you want. Well, now they had seven loaves. And guess what we have as leftovers, as pieces? Seven huge baskets. Now, why... 12 leftover baskets of individual travel bag size last time. One for each of the disciples, right? So that they have a reminder of God's provision to them as they head out that night across the sea. Hopefully as a reminder that, hey, when you get to the place, when, God, when I tell you to do something and you realize you can't do it in your own strength, what, should you what, what do you need to learn to do? Look up and ask for help. And they had those 12 little baskets that showed that God is able to provide multiply loaves. If you don't have the, the, the resources in yourself, ask for it. If I've told you to do it, I want you to do it. And if you're unable to do it in your own strength, ask for help and I'll help you do it. Well, here we come to the same situation again. And instead of connecting the dots and going, uh, well, all we have is seven loaves and uh, we can't meet this need, maybe you should do the miracle that you did again. Right? 
And you're thinking, how can they not connect those dots? I'll tell you why. Because of spiritual blindness. Because they're as daft as we are. And before you start looking your, down your nose on the apostles, how many times are you in earthly circumstances beyond your control and you're still only looking at it from an earthly perspective and never once giving consideration, God, I can't do this, will you help me? This time, everybody eats again. They're satisfied. They started with seven loaves. What do they have left over? Seven huge baskets. Why seven? Well, they started with seven loaves. Is Jesus just really bad at miracles? And he, and he didn't get it to come out even. So oh, look at all these leftovers that are wasted. Some people have suggested, and I think I preached it this way when I was in, doing Matthew's gospel, going through the parallel account. I, I don't remember for sure. And my notes weren't as clear as I might have liked. But uh, the seven baskets may have been seven large baskets. So, you know, he said that there were a lot of people that came from a long way. So maybe he made sure that there were plenty of leftovers so that everybody that had to go a long way, they could su supply themselves before they left. Maybe that's true. I think it, I think it preaches well. I, at least I thought it did. Um, but, you know, today, as I look at this and having just gone through Mark 6, you, you know what I'm convinced? You want, you want to know why there's seven large baskets left over? Because I started with seven loaves and now I'm going to have seven large baskets so you can see just how abundantly and above and beyond anything you could ask or think God can provide for you what you need to do what he tells you to do this is just teaching essentially the same lesson again it's the same lesson again and there were verse 9 about 4,000 there Matthew 15 verse 38 says that that does not include women and children and he sent them away just like he did last time verse 10 now, this is, again, different than last time. Instead of sending the disciples across the sea on their own, uh, he enters the boat with the disciples, and they come to the, the uh, district of Dalmanutha. Now, you say, well, where is that? Well, if you look at the parallel in Matthew 15, verse 39, uh, Matthew call, refers to it as Magdala, which you know about Mary Magdalene, right? Okay, Magdala or Magdala, depending on how you pronounce it, that is on that western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's back over in the territory of Galilee. You say, well, why is there a different name here? Well, historically, there's, there's no record of this name apart from the Bible, which means probably, my guess, uh, if you're uh, a Gentile on the eastern shore, you referred to what, what is the region of Magdala as Dalmanutha. Uh, but if you're from the western shore, you refer to it as Magdala. And that's why Matthew uses that. And Mark, of course, is, is writing from Rome to a Gentile audience. So that might, that's probably the reason he's using that. In either case, we know where it is because of what Matthew tells us. And he just went back into uh, the district there of Galilee. So he leaves Gentile territory and heads back into Jewish territory now. And that, that takes us from the provision of the spiritual sign now to the principle of spiritual blindness. And here's the heart of today's message. Are you ready? This is what I want you to walk away with today. The principle of spiritual blindness. I want you to see that there are two types of spiritual blindness. 
There's the total spiritual blindness of the Pharisees that we'll see in verses 11 through 13, and the partial spiritual blindness of the disciples. We start with the total spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Jesus and his disciples get back into Galilee, back into, Gen- or back into Jewish territory. And verse 11 tells us the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And this is a place where, again, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 16 and look at the parallel because there's a little bit more that's given here. They are the Pharisees arguing with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Okay? The word argue there in verse 11 of Mark 8, is a word that can either describe discussing a subject with somebody, trying to reason out the right answer, or reflecting, meditating, or contemplating on something on your own, or if you're in a negative context, a contentious context like this clearly is, then it means to contend strongly and persistently for your point of view against somebody else and their point of view. And that's what the Pharisees, and according to the parallel in Matthew 16, the Sadducees are also there. Matthew 16 and verse 1, if you're there, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, putting Jesus to the test, seeking to trip him up, They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And notice in Matthew, uh, Jesus replies to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, because the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times? You know, I was a Boy Scout. And I still to this day, to this day, I remember the basic principle. Uh, Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. It's just a nice little ditty, nice little rhyme that says, if you just look at the sky in the morning or the evening, you can tell like what the, the, the weather's going to be like either during the day or over the nighttime. And as a general principle, it's pretty consistently accurate more accurate than weathermen or weather women for that matter okay and and more reliable and when when jesus makes reference to this now this isn't in mark's gospel but he says in verse four an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of jonah and he left them and went away now you go back to Mark 8, verse 11, the Pharisees, and like, Matt, like I told, showed you, Matthew Alt mentions the Sadducees are together with them. That by itself, that's like Republicans and Democrats coming together. Okay? Sadducees and Pharisees are political and religious enemies. Okay? This would be, this would be Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump working together on something. You follow me? Yeah, wow, exactly. All right, now you're starting to get it. These are, these are diametrically opposed, uh, theologically, politically, practically. I mean, it's, it's, it, they're probably even Cardinals versus Cubs fans, okay? 
That, that, that's what we're talking about as far as the, 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 the contention between the two of them. But the one thing they all have in common is what? They're opposed to Jesus. Uh, and they are committed to finding a way to trip him up and prove that he is not from God. They are not coming to him asking for a sign so that, so that they can receive him truly for who he is. They're not coming with any kind of a question, hesitation, or reservation. They are absolutely, totally, and permanently committed to their opposition to Jesus Christ. You say, how could anybody be so blind? All Jesus did was show love to people. All Jesus did was be merciful and gracious and kind. And he also called both the Sadducees, the priesthood, and the Pharisees and the scribes, he called them all to repent because of their sins. When, when you get right down to the brass tacks, you know what offended the, the, uh, the Sadducees and the priests? You want to you know how Jesus offended them? At the beginning of his ministry, he walked into the temple and saw all the corruption there. Saw how they, had, they were selling the sacrificial animals at a profit. Uh, they had the money changers that were causing people to, to, to pay a portion in order to convert their money that they brought to the temple from wherever they were in the world coming just to worship God and offer up the sacrifices that God had prescribed. But you know what? We're not going to accept foreign money because this has to be sacred. And for a small fee, we will translate your coins into proper coins so you can go over and pay a premium price for pre-certified animals because you can bring one of your own, but the priest will evaluate it and tell me, has there ever been a perfect animal? I can find a fault in any animal, right? And so, oh, look, the hair's out of place or that eye's not exactly evil, whatever. It's not without defect. Now, by the way, you can take it outside of town, sell it to the shepherds there. Uh, they're not going to pay you what it's worth, but you can sell it to them. And then you could come back and buy it at a premium from us when we then certify it and sell it to the next guy. Then listen, that corruption is what's going on in the temple when Jesus shows up. He flips over the money changers' temples, he, or tables. He drives out those that were selling the animals. And he confronts the religious leaders there, the, the Sadducees and the priesthood, for their religious corruption and how they had turned the whole of the worship of God in the temple into a money-making scheme. From that point on, the high priest and the Sadducees, the priesthood, they were absolutely opposed to Jesus. And the initial response of the Pharisees was, oh, this is our guy. This is him. Nicodemus comes to Jesus that night. And he says, we know you are a man sent from God because nobody can do the things that, God, uh, that you do unless God is with him. What's he referring to? Miracles? No. Walking into the temple and nobody, not one of the temple guards lifted a finger to stop him because everybody knew what he said and what he was doing was right. God had to be with him. Pharisees are like, you're our guy. And you know what Jesus says? Well, you guys are my guys too. No. He says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You're the teacher of Israel. And you don't know these things? Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I don't care how much you have dedicated your life to externally conforming to the word of God. You're actually just conforming to the religious traditions, to the, to the traditions of the elders, the rabbinic traditions. You're following all that external uh, righteousness and you are failing to recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Nicodemus, 
You want to enter the kingdom of God? You got to be born again just like everybody else. And you're the preeminent teacher in Israel. You're, you're the head of the seminary. You don't understand this? And from that point on, for the rest of Jesus' ministry, when he goes into the, the uh, synagogues, when he goes into the towns throughout Judea and all the way up through uh, Galilee, he confronts every Pharisee and scribe on the same thing. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to recognize yourself as a sinner in need of a savior. You remember the parable he told? Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. I do all these things that are right in your sight. And the, and the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes. He says, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee. Oh, the Pharisees did not accept Jesus and were diametrically opposed to Jesus and filled with hatred and disdain and looking for a way to trip Jesus up because he called them to repentance just like he called tax collectors and sinners to repent, just like he called the priesthood to repent. What offended everybody in Jesus' ministry is that he called people to repent and he called people to commit themselves to himself for who he really is, and that is God incarnate. You want to know why there's total spiritual blindness here in the Pharisees? Why they would seek from Jesus a sign from heaven to test him? You want to know why he sighs deeply in his spirit? By the way, that's the same word for sighing. When, when Jesus cured the man la- that we looked at last week, the mute man uh, that was, ha- or, excuse me, the deaf man who was, who was also essentially mute, when Jesus looks at him and he sighs, okay, This is the same word, only it's intensified. That word was he sighs, and he did that in order to convey his empathy to the man because the man can't hear, he can't talk to him, so he visibly sighs. I see your pain, I see your distress, and I'm going to cure it. He jams his fingers into his ears and puts his finger on the tongue, etc., and then cures him. This is the same word for sighing, except it is an intensive form. It means to sigh deeply or groan in agitation and distress. And that's the idea. In the very core of his being, he sighs deeply here. This is a time when he's upset. This is a time when he's agitated. And he says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And you remember in the Matthew parallel, except the sign of Jonah, which is a reference to what? His death, burial, and resurrection. I can't help but think about all the miracles Jesus has already done up to this point and say, what kind of signs do you need? What kind of evidence do you need? But you know what? There's not, you know, some have argued, well, they're looking for an Elijah-like sign. You know, call down fire from heaven to consume a soaked offering to God or something like that. Or uh, uh, call the ground to open up and swallow these Pharisees and Sadducees and close back up over. Well, you know what? When God did that in the Old Testament, how did the people respond? They were just afraid. They were afraid for a while, and then the next thing you know, they're grumbling and complaining that they, all we have to eat is this crummy manna. Right? Listen, we're talking about spiritual blindness. It's not about evidence. 
It's not about having access to facts. It's not about seeing miracles or seeing the more miracles or a really convincing miracle. There is no more convincing miracle that could be given to this generation. When Jesus rebukes Capernaum and the other cities there in Galilee where he did the majority of his miracles, you know what he says? Woe to you, because if the miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, which I've done in you, uh, they would, those cities would still be here. God wouldn't have wiped them out. You've had more evidence of the power of God on display. You've been given more evidence, more revelation than any people in all of redemptive history. And you're not responding to it. It's never been about evidence. If you in your heart are sitting there and going, well, I kind of would like to believe in Jesus and I'd like to be forgiven, but I just I need something to prove it to me. You don't lack evidence. You have a whole book full of it right here. The authoritative, inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God. You have the evidence right here. If there had been any evidence that Jesus was faking His miracles, they would not have had only one way to argue against His miracles, and that is to say, He must be doing it by the powers of Satan. That's the best those who hated Jesus could come up with. And Jesus' answer, that doesn't even make any sense. That's obviously not the case. You know, spiritual blindness is a result of not wanting to repent. At the end of the day, if there is something that holds you back from really committing yourself to Jesus Christ, stepping forward, getting baptized, uh, being added to the church, and from that point on just living your life as an expression of thank you to God for the salvation He's given to us in Christ, if there's, if there's anything that holds you back, it is not a lack of evidence. It is not a lack of revelation. It is, it is an unbelieving, unrepentant heart and an unwillingness to submit in total to God and to His authority. That's the real issue. Your real issue has nothing to do with evidence, has nothing to do with a convincing argument. And listen, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you've been sharing it with them for a long time and you just wish, well, well maybe I get Pastor Brian to talk to them. Maybe I get John MacArthur to show up and talk to him. Maybe I get Elijah to come back. I mean, he just went away on a fiery chariot. Maybe he brings his fiery chariot. It's probably a Ferrari, right? So maybe he brings his Ferrari back and lands in front of them and says, hey, I'm from God and you need to repent. Maybe that would convince him. Listen, Jesus himself was here and most of the people didn't believe him. It's not about evidence. It's spiritual blindness. It's a willful rejection of the revelation that God has given you. Romans 1 tells us that we all know there's a God deep down within our heart. Even atheists know there's a God. They have just worked diligently to suppress that truth in unrighteousness because to accept that there is a God means I'm accountable to Him. There is a God, and you, deep down you know that's true. Everything the Bible says about all of us being descended from our original greatest grandparents, Adam and Eve, is true. Your sin nature, my sin nature, it's all true. You know it's true. According to Ecclesiastes 3, we all know there's more to life than this earthly existence. We all know that we're going to die, and we're going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. We all know that. 
And the only way you can maintain your sanity if you don't repent and submit, run to God and ask for forgiveness and give your life to Him, the only way you can maintain your sanity is to commit yourself to spiritual blindness, not being able to see the truth that's in front of you. Because otherwise, you have to be continually recognizing how guilty you are and how ultimately you're going to have to answer for it. Say, well, everybody doesn't have the Scriptures. Yeah, Paul deals with that. In Romans 2 and 3, he says, even the Gentiles who don't have the Scriptures, even the Gentiles in that day who have no access to, have had basically no access to the Scriptures unless they've heard it from a Jew, they know in their own hearts, in their own conscience, that condemns them. You know something? There was a time in your life when you, the first time you did something wrong and you knew it. And your heart convicted you. From that point, you knew you were accountable to God. From that point, you knew you were accountable to God. And if you're like me, in your own heart, you work through it. Between the time that you hit your sister and the 300 yards it took to get from the far acreage into the house, by the, time, by the time you walked, you started reasoning. Your sister's crying and she's running to tell mom and dad. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, I'm so, 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 so. And then and you go, well, it was an accident. Well, the next thing you know, she started it and you were just defending yourself. And you, you, you ever notice how in our own hearts and minds we just twist things around? We, we rearrange the 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 facts to paint ourselves in a light where we're not guilty again. That's spiritual blindness. And that's, what, that's, that's how the Pharisees can come out and argue with Jesus, contend with Jesus, and say, you need to prove. You need to prove you have a right to call us to repentance. You need to prove that you are who you say you are, that you really are from God. We want a sign from heaven. Yeah, you know what? You're not getting a sign except the sign of Jonah. As, the, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so too the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the, or, or in, the, uh, in the, uh, the seat of the earth. My death, burial, and resurrection is the only sign that you're going to get. And you know something? That doesn't convince him either. Jesus rose from the dead, and it didn't convince him. Show me his body. You can't till you get to heaven. And then you go, there he is, sitting at the right hand of the power on, on high. Listen, spirit, total spiritual blindness of the Pharisees is what's on display here. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him and sighing deeply in his spirit. You want to know the only time you see Jesus get agitated? Hard-hearted unbelief and a refusal to repentance. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly. This is, by the way, the word truly, or your Bible may say verily, that's the word amen. It's the Greek word amen. It comes from the Hebrew word amen. It means absolutely, most certainly, emphatically, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. He hops back in a boat and leaves from the region of Magdala, or Dominutha, and he heads back over the other side of Galilee. 
Why? Because God never caters to unbelief. Why didn't he stand there and reason with them? Because he doesn't cast pearls before swine. It's not about evidence. It's about total spiritual blindness. It's about a willful commitment to what is not true. To the rejection of the truth. At the end of the day, if you have not given your life to Christ, your problem is not a lack of evidence. Your problem is an unwillingness to totally submit to the authority of God and repent and give your life to Him. Jesus is going to deal with this uh, later, but this is the heart of the matter when we're talking about spiritual blindness. The total spiritual blindness of the Pharisees is willful suppression and rejection of the truth because they don't want to repent and they don't want to submit. Now, I want you to look at the partial spiritual blindness of the disciples. And of all the stuff we've gone through, this is the one I most want you to catch, for the majority of us anyways. If you're a believer, I don't want you to look down your nose at the disciples and go, they are so daft. How could they not get it? Because the fact of the matter is, I think this is very much a lesson for us as well. Notice we get to verse 14. And they, the disciples, had forgotten to take bread. And they didn't have any more than one loaf in the boat with them. So they, they left the Gentile area, went across the sea back to Galilee where the Jews were. And Jesus has a run in with the religious leaders and immediately, as a, essentially an act of judgment, departs from there and heads back over to the other side. So he went from the, basically from the southeast uh, to the west and now up to the northeast. Okay, and so uh, so still in a Jewish area up in the northeast, but the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And you can understand this, right? We probably they probably were expecting to be there longer and they're naturally going to be the ones taking care of like the practical details. Since Jesus is spending all of his time teaching and doing miracles and everything else, everybody's always asking him questions. Everybody always wants to see him. So some of the disciples were just always taking turns. Probably Judas was the keeper of the money bag and the rest of the guys were most likely just running here and there and, and gathering supplies so that you can take care of them on the way, right? Well, they left a little quick, probably. And so they had forgotten to, while they were there, to buy more bread, to stock back up on their basic provisions. And they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. One loaf is not enough to feed even one of them, much less the 12 of them plus Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Previously, in Mark 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000, right? We just saw the feeding of the 4,000. Is a lack of bread really an issue for Jesus? Verse 15. He was then at this point giving orders to them. That means, uh, by the way, giving orders is a Greek word that means to clearly define something or to clearly express in no uncertain terms what is expected from somebody. So this is a really serious chat. This is, a, this is one of those seminary lectures where he wants his guys to listen up because this is crucial to get. Okay? That's the idea of giving orders. This isn't just make sure you do this and you do that and you do that. This is, this is giving serious instructions. 
preparing them for ministry and equipping them for ministry even now. He was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware. Even in English, you notice the double warning? Watch out, beware. Like, be alert and keep watch. Always attentive. This is really serious stuff, guys. Both of those are, are present imperatives in the Greek, which means that these are you need to be continually watching and continually wary of what? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And again, Matthew throws in the Sadducees. You need to watch out for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod. And the word leaven, you know what leaven is, right? You, mix, you, you need a little leaven into a, a lump of dough, right? And what happens? Then that whole batch gets influenced by that leaven. If you take a little, a little chunk of sourdough, right? And you, and you knead it into a, a big a, a hunk. What do you call it? A hunk of dough? Whatever. I don't know. A big, a big pile of dough, a big ball of whatever it is. Okay? Is there a scientific technical term? I'm, just, I'm getting the eyebrows above the glasses. So it's a hunk of dough. Okay, so I'm using the technical stuff that's been approved by Kerry. You got a hunk of dough. You grab a, a, little, a little bit of, uh, of sourdough, mix it in there. And what happens to that big hunk? Now you have a sourdough bread and you're going to, right? That's the idea of leaven. It influences a little bit of leaven uh, kneaded into a hunk of dough influences that whole thing. So the whole thing is now leavened bread, Right? So that's why Jesus uses the term leaven. Sometimes he uses it in a positive. Sometimes he uses it as a negative description. Here he says, beware of the leaven. That is of the influence of the Pharisees and the leaven, the influence of Herod and of the Sadducees, according to Matthew's gospel. And, and what he's referring to, as Matthew points out later, is their teachings. Their practices, their principles, the, the way they live their lives and the, the, the things they're teaching and saying. Well, what were, the, what were the Pharisees teaching? Legalism. Self-righteousness. Works-based righteousness. What were the Sadducees teaching? Listen, they had, they had a host of false doctrine and had a corrupt approach to worship. What about Herod? And we're talking about political expediency. And Jesus is saying, you need to watch out for the, 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 leaven, the influence of the Pharisees, the influence of the Sadducees, and the influence of Herod. This is serious stuff. These are the people, these are the parties that are going to be opposed to you. They're the parties that I'm contending with. They're the parties that are going to facilitate my crucifixion. And they're the guys that you're going to be preaching against, uh, preaching and, and contending with in your own ministry. This is important stuff. Listen up, guys. And they went, yep, we're taking note. Thanks, Jesus. Good warning. Good word. No, verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're not even hearing him. They're not tracking at all. You know immediately what they're doing? They're looking at each other and going, I knew we should have bought bread. Jesus already knows. If you go over to Matthew, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it this time. Matthew, verse 5, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. He said that because he knows we forgot. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand? And you go back to Mark 8 at this point. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see, not yet see or understand? The word see means to notice or observe something. To the understand means to comprehend it, to put the pieces together. Have you not figured it out yet? Do you have a hardened heart? Ooh, that one hurts. Who's the hard heart normally applied to throughout Scripture? Unbelievers. Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And by the way, you'll notice that's in all capital letters because in some of your Bibles because it is a reference uh, to Old Testament passages. There's a big debate as to which passage. Is it Jeremiah 5? Is it Ezekiel 12? In both of those cases, Jesus, or excuse me, God uses this kind of an, uh, a description. Having eyes, uh, they do not see. Having ears, they do not hear. Having eyes, you do not see. Having ears, you do not hear, etc. It's a rebuke. It's a, a, a judgment against the people of Israel, which God uses as a justification for sending them into captivity. Others have argued that this is just like uh, what you see in Isaiah 6, which is a passage referred to earlier in Mark's gospel. Isaiah 6, where uh, Isaiah says, you want me to go and preach and nobody's going to hear? Yeah, you, you keep preaching even though they will have eyes and they will not see and ears and they do not hear. And Jesus preached in parables uh, so to make it harder to understand. Hear, uh, because of the consistent way it's used throughout the Old Testament, as a description of people who are hard-hearted and unbelieving. Jesus uses it of His disciples. Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? End of verse 18. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? Notice, they do remember that, right? What do they say? They said 12. And the word for baskets there, again, is the, is the small word for basket, the knapsacks, the, the, the day basket. Verse 20, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets, large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. See, this, is, this, this verse by itself, this, this portion right here by itself is what convinces me when Jesus did the miracle of the 4,000 and they said, nobody could provide. This is how I'm convinced. This is why I'm convinced they didn't get it then because they still don't have it now. I've been doing object lessons for you guys and you still don't connect the dots. Verse 21, he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? This is not about bread. This is not about you having to make sure that you took care of everything and then I'm upset because you didn't bring enough bread. Has bread ever been the problem? What is the problem? You have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't listen. You have hard hearts. You know, 
for those who are spiritually blind in unbelief, it is not a matter of a lack of evidence. It's about suppressing the truth in your own unrighteousness because you refuse to submit to the authority of God. But hear me, there's a partial spiritual blindness that that affects even believers like the disciples here. And what is it that was encompassing all of their thinking? What was it that they were most concerned about? Practical stuff. Everyday mundane issues. One of them was supposed to get bread and none of them did. And they all felt like, oh no, we've dropped the ball here and we don't want to get in trouble. And Jesus is trying to teach them something that's spiritually important. And Jesus has done a couple of clear object lessons that say, as far as practical needs, I can supply all of those in abundance, right? And did you guys not see those? Did did you still not get the point of those miracles that I've done? When, when I tell you to do something, when I, when I present you a problem that I want you to solve and you realize you can't do it in your own strength, what do you need to do? Look up and ask me to help you. And then in obedience, dedicate yourself to it depending upon me because you're not going to be able to do ministry on your own. But you know what? At the same time, when I'm giving you instructions about the dangers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, you know something, you're, you're so worried about the everyday mundane stuff, you fail to look up and recognize there are spiritual principles that are, that are in play here that are way bigger than just the temporal mundane issues. And I dare say that even, even today as believers, we can miss spiritual truths right in front of us. The disciples were so focused on the practical and mundane tasks of the day that they not only failed to learn the spiritual lessons Jesus had been teaching them, they even failed to listen to him when he was straight out teaching them. And before you look down your noses at them, think about this. When, when you know the Bible tells you to confront somebody in sin or to repent of your own sin, when you know the Bible tells you to do something that's hard, when you know the Bible tells you that you are to count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials, and you look and you're at the end of yourself, what do you do? Do you apply the lessons that Jesus was teaching His disciples and look to Him to supply what you need to live your life today to honor Him? Or are you just looking for a way in your own strength to get through the day? Or are you just looking for a way in your own strength to escape from the trial? Listen, spiritual blindness is not just about how totally, willfully blind to the truth unbelievers are. We can be partially spiritually blind ourselves when we fail to look up and recognize that God is according to his own promises to us, working all of the circumstances out in our lives every day for our good and for his glory. Is that not true? I mean, if Romans 8 is still in the Bible, which I can check. Yep, still there. God is still on his throne. It's still true. Has God called us to do things sometimes that are beyond what we can do in our own strength? Has God called us, called us sometimes to endure trials and hardships and difficult circumstances that are beyond our own abilities to get through? Yeah. Yeah. But not alone. And that's where a believing heart learns from the lessons that Jesus was teaching his disciples 
And when you get to that place, you want to know how you can always get a yes to your prayer requests from God? You want to know how to always get a yes? Pray for God to help you obey Him. And then in faith, obey Him to the best of your ability and you know what you will find. All of a sudden you have the strength. All of a sudden you're able to be successful in honoring Him. Now your, your trials won't go away necessarily. It may still be hard. You may be more tired afterwards than you have been in the past, but you have the restful sleep of a clean conscience and a satisfied, relation, a joyous relationship with your loving Father. We talk about spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness, in a sense, is always willful. Either you are committed not to submitting to God, and that's why you're spiritually blind, or you're committed to your own strength and your own ideas, and you're ignoring God. Father, thank you so much for the love you have for us and the way you sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Increase our faith and help us to live lives of faith in obedience to you for your, uh, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.